Section 115, Introduction The first general conference in Missouri was held at Far West on April 6, 1838. At this conference, Thomas B. Marsh, David W. Patton, and Brigham Young were sustained as the presidency of the church in Zion. The following day, David W. Patton reported on the labors of the Twelve and said he could not any longer recommend William E. McClellan, Luke S. Johnson, Lyman E. Johnson, John F. Boynton, and he was somewhat doubtful about William Smith. There was also some consternation over the fact that John Whitmer, former church historian, would not release the records of the church which he possessed as former historian of the church. After the conference, charges were preferred against Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and others, whereupon they were excommunicated. On April 26, Joseph Smith received a revelation which gave great encouragement to the faithful stalwarts who still remain faithful in the kingdom. This is section 115. Verily, thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and also my servant Sidney Rigdon, and also my servant Hiram Smith, and your counselors who are and shall be appointed hereafter, and also unto you my servant Edward Partridge and his counselors. This revelation was addressed to the First Presidency of the Church, Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, Hiram Smith, and also to the presiding bishop, Edward Partridge and his counselors, as well as the high council and faithful members of the priesthood. And also unto my faithful servants, who are of the high council of my church in Zion. For thus it shall be called. And unto all the elders and people of my church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, scattered abroad in all the world. For thus shall my church be called in the last days. Even the church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints. To eliminate any confusion as to the proper name of the church, the Savior said it should be called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Verily I say unto you all, Arise and shine forth, that thy light may be a standard for the nations, and that the gathering together upon the land of Zion and upon her stakes may be for a defense, and for a refuge from the storm, and from wrath, when it shall be poured out without mixture upon the whole earth. Let the city far west be a holy and consecrated land unto me, and it shall be called most holy, for the ground upon which thou standest is holy. The Savior calls upon the church to assert itself, to rise and shine forth and gather the saints in a multitude at this new location at Far West. This area was therefore presented to the church as a center for the new gathering of the saints. Therefore I command you to build a house unto me for the gathering together of my saints, that they may worship me. And let there be a beginning of this work and a foundation, and a preparatory work this following summer. And let the beginning be made on the fourth day of July next. And from that time forth, let my people labor diligently to build a house unto my name. 
The Lord now gives the saints in Missouri a second opportunity to build a temple. It is interesting that the Lord selected the 4th of July to commence the work, and he urges them to proceed with great speed until it is finished. And in one year from this day, let them recommence laying the foundation of my house. Thus let them from that time forth labor diligently until it shall be finished, from the cornerstone thereof unto the top thereof, until there shall not anything remain that is not finished. Verily I say unto you, Let not my servant Joseph, neither my servant Sidney, neither my servant Hiram, get in debt any more for the building of a house unto my name. But let a house be built unto my name according to the pattern which I will show unto them. This temple was to be according to a different pattern than the temple in Kirtland. The saints are expected to rally behind this sacred building, and the First Presidency are not to go into debt to finance the temple. This has been the policy of the church from then until now. No temple is dedicated until it is completely paid for. And if my people build it not according to the pattern which I shall show unto their presidency, I will not accept it at their hands. But if my people do build it according to the pattern which I shall show unto their presidency, even my servant Joseph and his counselors, then I will accept it at the hands of my people. The Lord warns that unless they build a temple exactly as the pattern is revealed by the Lord, it will be rejected. And again verily I say unto you, it is my will that the city of far west should be built up speedily by the gathering of my saints. It is the desire of the Lord that the church build up the city of far west as rapidly as possible. And also that other places should be appointed for stakes in the regions round about, as they shall be manifested unto my servant Joseph from time to time. Furthermore, the Lord wants the saints to build up whole stakes not just towns in this vicinity. The Lord wants a commonwealth to be erected in Caldwell County. For behold, I will be with him, and I will sanctify him before the people. For unto him have I given the keys of this kingdom and ministry. Even so, amen. The Lord says he will be pouring out upon the mind of Joseph Smith the areas that need to be developed and he wants the saints to support him as the Lord's spokesman and as the prophet who holds the keys to lead the people. Section 116, Introduction On May the 18th, 1838, Joseph took a fairly large group of brethren to explore the lands north of Caldwell County, which was called Davies County. He had been instructed by the Lord to find appropriate areas for additional stakes as the saints gathered in considerable numbers in this region of Missouri. As they got about 25 miles north of Far West, Joseph Smith was lifted into a state of sublimation as the Lord revealed to him that he was walking on some of the most sacred historical land on the planet Earth. This brings us to section 116. Spring Hill is named by the Lord Adam on Diamond, because, said he, 
It is the place where Adam shall come to visit his people, or the Ancient of Days shall sit, as spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Here is what Joseph Smith wrote concerning this trip. Quote, We traveled to the mouth of Honey Creek, which is a tributary of Grand River, where we camped for the night. This morning we struck our tents and formed a line of march, crossing Grand River at the mouth of Honey Creek, and pursued our course up the river, mostly through timber, for about 18 miles. Then we arrived at Colonel Lyman White's home. He lives at the foot of Tower Hill, a name I gave the place in consequence of the remains of an old Nephite altar or tower that stood there where we camped for the Sabbath. In the afternoon, I went up the river about half a mile to White's Ferry, accompanied by President Rigdon and by Clerk George W. Robinson, for the purpose of selecting and laying claim to a city plat near said ferry. I might just mention that he laid claim to several townships at a place called Spring Hill, and then said, by the mouth of the Lord it was named Adam on Diamond, because, said he, it is the place where Adam shall come to visit his people, or the Ancient of Days shall sit, as spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Unquote. This is History of the Church, Volume 3, pages 14 and 15. Later the Lord assured Joseph that this region was ideal for new settlements and said, Is there not room enough on the mountains of Adam and Diamon, and in the plains of Olahashinihah, or the land where Adam dwelt? Unquote. Doctrine and Covenants 117, verse 8. There must have been extensive discussion among the brethren because Brigham Young later wrote, Quote, Joseph the prophet told me that the Garden of Eden was in Jackson County, Missouri, and when Adam was driven out, he went to the place we now call Adam on Diamond in Davies County, Missouri, unquote. And that's taken from the book entitled Wilford Woodruff by Matthias F. Cowley, page 481. Section 117, Introduction. Once Joseph Smith had been forced to flee for his life from Kirtland and the temple had been taken over by apostates, the members of the Kirtland stake began to scatter widely. A survey of those who wanted to form a company to migrate on to Zion provided a total of 515 people. Joseph had left William Marks in charge of the church property, but noticed that his name was not on the list of the group called the Kirtland Camp that was migrating to Zion. This was also true of Bishop Newell K. Whitney. The Kirtland Camp left on July the 5th, 1838, and left only a scattering of around 200 members of the church in the Kirtland Stake. On July the 8th, Joseph inquired of the Lord for any instructions, and this is what he received. Now we come to section 117. Verily thus saith the Lord unto my servant William Marks, and also unto my servant Newell K. Whitney, Let them settle up their business speedily, and journey from the land of Kirtland, before I the Lord send again the snows upon the earth, 
In this verse, the Lord suggests that William Marks and Lou K. Whitney should finish up their business in Kirtland and head for Zion. Let them awake and arise and come forth, and not tarry, for I, the Lord, command it. Therefore, if they tarry, it shall not be well with them. In this verse, the Lord appears to have decided that he wants these men to hurry to Zion as soon as possible. He therefore commands them to proceed and not, quote, tarry, unquote. Let them repent of all their sins and of all their covetous desires before me, saith the Lord. For what is property unto me, saith the Lord? As businessmen Marks and Whitney may have thought they could capitalize on the forced departure of the people of Kirtland. Therefore the Lord says, Let the properties of Kirtland be turned out for debts, saith the Lord. Let them go, saith the Lord. And whatsoever remaineth, let it remain in your hands, saith the Lord. For have I not the fowls of heaven, and also the fish of the sea, and the beasts of the mountains? Have I not made the earth? Do I not hold the destinies of all the armies of the nations of the earth? Apparently many of the saints had left their property to be liquidated by these two men. The Lord tells them to liquidate these assets to pay off the pending debts of those who had left in a hurry. Therefore will I not make solitary places to bud and to blossom, and to bring forth in abundance, saith the Lord. Is there not room enough on the mountains of Adam on Diamon, and on the plains of Olaha, Shinha, or the land where Adam dwelt, that you should covet that which is but the drop, and neglect the more weighty matters? This verse implies that these two businessmen had some plans to capitalize on the abandoned property of the saints. In any event, the Lord tells these men that the prospective gains in Kirtland would be like a mere drop in the bucket compared to the prospects of building up the city of Adam on Diamond, where the Kirtland saints will be settling. Therefore, come up hither unto the land of my people, even Zion. The important thing is to go to the land of Zion promptly. Let my servant William Marks be faithful over a few things, and he shall be a ruler over many. Let him preside in the midst of my people in the city of far west, and let him be blessed with the blessings of my people. Now this verse must have come as a surprise to these men. William Marks is invited to preside over the saints at far west. Let my servant Newell K. Whitney be ashamed of the Nicolaitan band and of all their secret abominations, and of all his littleness of soul before me, saith the Lord, and come up to the land of Adam on Diamon, and be a bishop unto my people, saith the Lord, not in name, but in deed, saith the Lord. Apparently Newell K. Whitney had some associates of which the Lord did not approve. He tells Newell to be, quote, ashamed of this Nicolaitine band, unquote, his calling is to preside over the saints as bishop at Adam on Diamon. The Lord knew that if Newell K. Whitney remained faithful during all the tribulations that immediately faced the saints, he would then go to the Rocky Mountains and become the presiding bishop of the entire church. And again, I say unto you, 
I remember my servant Oliver Granger. Behold, verily I say unto him, that his name shall be had in sacred remembrance from generation to generation, forever and ever, saith the Lord. Therefore let him contend earnestly for the redemption of the first presidency of my church, saith the Lord. And when he falls, he shall rise again, for his sacrifice shall be more sacred unto me than his increase, saith the Lord. Therefore, let him come up hither speedily unto the land of Zion, and in the due time he shall be made a merchant unto my name, saith the Lord, for the benefit of my people. Therefore let no man despise my servant Oliver Granger, but let the blessings of my people be on him forever and ever. The Lord also promises Oliver Granger a prosperous future if he comes to Zion and diligently seeks to redeem the obligations of the First Presidency. And again, verily I say unto you, let all my servants in the land of Kirtland remember the Lord their God, and mine house also, to keep and preserve it holy, and to overthrow the money changers in mine own due time, saith the Lord. Even so. Amen. The Lord is also concerned about the Kirtland Temple. He wants the businessmen of Kirtland to overthrow the money changers who apparently had a mortgage on the building, or else the enemies of the church had taken out a lien on it. Oliver Granger was a great supporter of the Kirtland camp, which moved over 500 people more than 900 miles. He was then sent back to protect the church interest in the Kirtland Temple. Unfortunately, over the years, the sanctity of the temple in Kirtland deteriorated, and eventually it was used as a stable. Section 118, Introduction This is the second revelation Joseph Smith received on July the 8th, 1838. Joseph has now set up his headquarters in far west Missouri. He had arranged for caretakers in Kirtland to manage any church property, as well as that of the members who went to Zion before they could sell their farms and homes. The Kirtland camp of 515 people had left Kirtland and was on their way to Missouri. Eventually, they would settle in Adamondiaman around October the 4th, 1838. Because the prophet and most of the people had left Kirtland for Missouri, the population of Kirtland had shrunk to around 260 people, according to J.M. Sojal, Doctrine and Covenants Commentary, page 919. The most important problem facing Joseph Smith was the partial disintegration of the Quorum of the Twelve. Four of them had become delinquent in their calling. Nevertheless, five apostles were with Joseph when this revelation was given. They were Thomas B. Marsh, David W. Patton, Brigham Young, Parley P. Pratt, and William Smith. In order to remedy the deficiency of the four apostles who had become faint-hearted, Joseph pleads with his heavenly Father and says, quote, Show me thy will, O Lord, concerning the twelve. Unquote. And that brings us to section 118. Verily thus saith the Lord, let a conference be held immediately, 
let the twelve be organized, and let men be appointed to supply the place of those who are fallen. It is obvious that the Lord needs a full roster of faithful servants in the Quorum of the Twelve. Notice that Joseph is to call a conference immediately to replace the delinquent apostles with more valiant servants. Let my servant Thomas remain for a season in the land of Zion to publish my word. The Lord says the president of the Quorum of the Twelve is to remain at church headquarters in Zion to supervise the publication of church books. Let the residue continue to preach from that hour. And if they will do this in all lowliness of heart, in meekness and humility and long-suffering, I, the Lord, give unto them a promise that I will provide for their families, and an effectual door shall be opened for them from henceforth. But the rest of the Quorum of the Twelve must be actively engaged in finding the honest in heart who will accept the gospel and build up the strength of the church in Zion. They are to go forth without purse or script, and the Lord promises to provide for their families. And next spring let them depart to go over the great waters, and there promulgate my gospel, the fullness thereof, and bear record of my name. Now comes a big surprise. The quorum is going to be sent overseas the following spring to launch a vast missionary campaign abroad. Let them take leave of my saints in the city of Far West on the 26th day of April next, on the building spot of my house, saith the Lord. The Lord tells them to come together and begin their missionary journey from far west on the 26th of April, 1839. He says they are to meet at the spot which has been dedicated for the erection of a temple in far west. Little does Joseph realize it, but this revelation will be circulated and a copy will fall into the hands of the enemies of the church. They will immediately resolve to see that this is one prophecy of Joseph Smith that will never be allowed to be fulfilled. In fact, they are secretly planning to completely expel the Mormons from Missouri, so that if the apostles try to meet at the temple site in far west the following April, it will be at the risk of their lives. Let my servant John Taylor, and also my servant John E. Page, and also my servant Wilfred Woodruff, and also my servant Willard Richards, be appointed to fill the places of those who have fallen, and be officially notified of their appointment. This verse had some exciting news for four of the most faithful members of the priesthood. It says the new apostles to replace the delinquents will be John Taylor, a convert from Canada, John E. Page, Wilford Woodruff, and Willard Richards. This revelation instructs them to immediately go forth as full-time missionaries, but to be prepared to leave for an assignment overseas by April the 26th, 1839. Section 119, Introduction. This is the third revelation Joseph Smith received on July the 8th. 1838. The Lord had referred to the tithing of his people in the Doctrine and Covenant 64, verse 23, 
85, verse 3, and 97, verse 11. However, under the law of consecration, the people had come to look upon their financial contributions merely as a, quote, donation, unquote, or a free will offering. In other words, up to this time, the church had never been put under the law of tithing as required by the Old Testament. Joseph now approaches the Lord with a specific question, quote, O Lord, show unto thy servant how much thou requirest of the properties of the people for a tithing, unquote. In this revelation, the Lord sets forth the law of tithing as required by those who want to have a part in the new Zion. So here is the text of section 119. Verily, thus saith the Lord, I require all their surplus property to be put into the hands of the bishop of my church in Zion for the building of mine house and for the laying of the foundation of Zion and for the priesthood and for the debts of the presidency of my church. And this shall be the beginning of the tithing of my people. Since the bishop is responsible for the material needs of the church, all donations are to be made to him. It is significant that the money is not paid directly to Joseph Smith. There is an implication here that those who join the church will contribute their, quote, surplus, unquote, wealth, to the bishop to cover the financial needs which are listed. But the Lord says that is, quote, beginning of the tithing of his people, period, unquote. And after that, those who have thus been tithed shall pay one-tenth of all their interest annually. And this shall be a standing law unto them forever. For my holy priesthood, saith the Lord, and after that, the Lord says the person under the law of tithing will pay one-tenth of his interest or increase each year. Furthermore, this will be established as the permanent law of the church forever. Notice in the second verse of this revelation, the Lord says this money is to be used for the, quote, building of mine house and for the laying of the foundation of Zion and for the debts of the presidency of the church, unquote. Today, the obligations of the church include education, missionary work, building temples, chapels, and schools, providing welfare for the poor, and paying for the basic administrative costs of the church. We should also mention that those who have received their endowments have entered into the law of consecration, which means that everything a person possesses or acquires is subject to the needs of the Lord in building up the kingdom of God. As a result, many members of the church contribute far more than a tenth of their income, and when called upon, they accept assignments as mission presidents or other callings, requiring all their time and talents, and serving at their own expense. It has been this kind of righteous generosity that has allowed the church to build 34 temples in a single year and at the same time build a magnificent conference center in Salt Lake City, the largest building for worship purposes in the United States. Verily I say unto you, it shall come to pass that all those who gather unto the land of Zion shall be tithed of their surplus properties and shall observe this law, or they shall not be found worthy to abide among you. And I say unto you, 
If my people observe not this law to keep it holy, and by this law sanctify the land of Zion unto me, that my statutes and my judgments may be kept thereon, that it may be most holy, behold, verily I say unto you, it shall not be a land of Zion unto you, and this shall be an ensample unto all the stakes of Zion. Even so. Amen. Section 120. Introduction. One of the most critical issues facing Joseph in Missouri was how to authorize the distribution of the resources of the church. Apparently, the need for an answer to this question occurred to Joseph Smith just ten days after he received the revelation on the law of tithing. He therefore approached the Lord on July 18, 1838, and this is what he received. And here is a text of section 120. Verily thus saith the Lord, The time is now come, that it shall be disposed of by a council, composed of the first presidency of my church, and of the bishop and his council, and by my high council, and by mine own voice unto them, saith the Lord. Even so. Amen. The Lord gave this counsel concerning the distribution of the resources of the church. In a way, it was a graduated structure of authority, with separate branches in the church having the veto power over expenditures if they thought a proposal was excessive, not prudent, or in some cases inadequate. What the church leaders didn't realize, however, was the fact that they were on the verge of a devastating catastrophe that would not only deplete them of all their resources, but threaten their very existence as a people. Now this brings us to a rather lengthy historical note. It will be recalled that in 1833, the main body of the saints were originally located in Jackson County, where it was expected that the temple and the city of the New Jerusalem would be eventually built. However, the rapid increase in the population of the church led the old-timers in Jackson County to gather together into lawless mobs and launch raids against the Mormons in that county. They violently destroyed the church printing plant and demolished several of the new Mormon settlements. The people fled for their lives and, after crossing the Missouri River, settled in Ray County. At first, the persecuted Mormons were compassionately treated by the people in Ray County, and therefore they began to prosper. However, jealousies arose, and eventually, to avoid a conflict, a new county was created in the northern wilderness of Clay County and given the name of Caldwell County. The Mormons thought they would get the northern end of Clay County for the people who were pouring into Missouri from Kirtland and elsewhere. However, the old settlers in the north end of the county lobbied for a county of their own, and this deprived the Mormons of about one-half of their expected territory. It was called Davies County and turned out to include Adamondiomon and some of the most sacred territory in Mormon scriptural history. This was the situation in March of 1838 when Joseph Smith transferred the church headquarters to the new city of Far West in Caldwell County, 
which was specifically created for a Mormon settlement. However, the Mormons did not consider themselves restricted to Caldwell County and began purchasing land in several of the nearby counties. In fact, on May the 18th, 1838, Joseph had taken a group of brethren up into Davies County to select areas for future stakes. The major settlement in Davies County was called Adam on Diamond. And in section 116, the Lord revealed that in the latter days, this is where Adam would convene the priesthood in a great conference, and all of the keys would be returned to the Ancient of Days, or Adam, to make him the ruler of the world under Christ. This is referred to in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 9 to 14, and in Skousen, the 4,000 years, pages 629 to 631. As we have mentioned earlier, the camp of Zion consisted of 515 people from Kirtland. They were coming to Missouri, and Joseph resolved to have them settle in the new stake of Adamondi Almon, which is in Davies County. At this point, we need to reflect on the viewpoint of the Lord. He knew that before the year was out, the entire membership of the church in Missouri variously estimated at between 10,000 and 15,000 people, would be struggling to get out of Missouri because of Governor Boggs' proclamation of, quote, leave Missouri or be exterminated, unquote. The Lord also knew that Joseph Smith and the leaders of the church would be imprisoned and come close to being executed by a firing squad. However, in spite of the Lord's foreknowledge of these tragic events, the Savior allowed the unfolding of these developments to run their course so that in the distant future when the saints came back to reclaim the sacred region, they would have a frame of reference for the rebuilding of New Jerusalem in Jackson County and the building of the temple at Far West and the building of a temple in Adam on Diamond. Nevertheless, at this very moment, we now know that secret bands were being mobilized in at least 11 counties to evict the Mormons from Missouri or exterminate them. These mobs intended to use their political pressure to make Governor Boggs fulfill his threat to evict or exterminate the Mormons, as he had done in Jackson County when he was lieutenant governor. Now we have set the stage so the student of church history can follow the stream of events which now began to unfold. The first crisis occurred in Davies County, where the officials had canvassed every Mormon home to warn them that they had better get out while they could do so safely. These new immigrants were indignant. They were American citizens and thought they had certain inalienable rights, Therefore, they ignored the warning. On August the 6th, 1838, a group of about 12 Mormons tried to vote in the regular election at Gallatin in Davies County, but they were set upon by a crowd of around 100 men who had assembled for the specific purpose of preventing them from voting. A physical encounter ensued, and after the Mormons had knocked out several of the mob, the rest dispersed. They then spread the news that the Mormons were planning to take over the county and force out the original settlers. The terrified older settlers began to mobilize. They appealed to the governor to send in the militia. 
Little Bird W. Boggs had been one of the leaders of the mob that had driven the saints out of Jackson County, and now he was governor of the state. It turned out that very shortly the hysteria that spread throughout western Missouri led to the mobilizing of angry mobs in 11 of the western counties. It turned out that Governor Boggs reacted to all of this hysteria by calling up six bodies of the state militia. This allowed many of the mob who were members of the militia to assume official military status as they began attacking Mormon settlements. Among the activities of the mobs, one lawless band had laid siege to the Mormon community of DeWitt in Carroll County. The people were told to be out of Carroll County by October the 1st, or they would be, quote, exterminated, period, unquote. This was before the governor had issued the notorious order of extermination, but the terrible threat of extermination was leveled against the saints in DeWitt as early as September the 21st, 1838. Beginning on October the 1st, the mob laid siege to the town. Among the leaders are ministers of bitterly hostile religious bodies. The siege completely cut off the people from their milk cows and cattle and all food supplies. The mob boasted they would starve them out. The people frantically appealed to the governor for help, but the governor's response was an offhanded remark, quote, let them fight it out, unquote. Within a week, starvation and death was beginning to take its toll, and after ten days the people realized their situation was hopeless. Therefore, the debilitated survivors agreed to leave their homes and farms and make the 50-mile trek to far west. But this was only a sample of what was happening in many other western counties. Mormon settlements were going through the same suffering and persecution. A stream of appeals were pouring into the governor, but he ignored them. On the 25th of October, a marauding band was resisted by the Mormons and an open battle was fought. This became known as the Battle of Crooked River. There were fatal casualties on both sides. One of the Mormon casualties was a popular member of the Mormon Quorum of Twelve Apostles named David W. Patton. Within two days, Governor Boggs had used the Battle of Crooked River as an excuse for issuing a totally unlawful and unconstitutional proclamation. It authorized the armed forces of the state to forcibly drive the entire Mormon population out of Missouri or, quote, exterminate them, unquote. The Mormons could scarcely believe this could happen in the United States. But on Tuesday, October the 30th, the Mormons learned how brutal and literal the slaughter of the people could be. Colonel William O. Jennings and his Captain Nehemiah Comstock took the governor's order of extermination literally. They rallied a force of cavalry troops from the state militia and with swords drawn thundered down on the tiny hamlet of Hans Mill. It was a massacre. The men fled into the blacksmith shop, but the soldiers aimed at them between the logs and systematically killed them. Even two young boys were shot. Women with their children and many of the wounded fled into the woods while the mob militia looted the town and even stripped clothing from the corpses of the dead. Hans Mill was 12 miles east of Far West, 
where Joseph Smith had set up the headquarters of the church. The very same day that the Hans Mill massacre occurred, General Lucas arrived at Far West with 2,000 men and a copy of the governor's extermination order. He had come with an order to evict the Mormons and burn the town, but he also had orders to capture Joseph Smith and the foremost leaders of the church so they could be executed by a firing squad. A Mormon traitor, Colonel George M. Hinkle, was a member of the state militia and had been chosen by the Mormons to protect Far West. Instead, he pretended to have the church leaders go out to meet General Lucas to negotiate some kind of agreeable terms. But when Colonel Hinkle met General Lucas, the presiding brethren were shocked to hear Hinkle say, quote, General, these are the prisoners I agreed to deliver up. Unquote. This is in The Essentials of Church History by Joseph F. Smith, page 240. Immediately, Joseph Smith found himself and his brethren seized by the soldiers and thrust into a canvas-covered vehicle designed to transport prisoners. Terrified and in agony, Joseph's mother tried to reach under the canvas before they drove away. But she could only touch the hand of the prophet when he reached outside of the bottom of the tight canvas which covered the vehicle. The church leaders had not yet heard about the extermination order, but Hinkle knew that General Lucas had orders to capture the Mormon leaders and then burn far west to the ground after it had been looted by the soldiers. He may have also known that General Clark was on the way to Far West with 6,000 additional men in case the Mormons resisted. This is described by Lucy Mack Smith in the History of Joseph Smith, page 271. The governor had also ordered the militia to completely disarm the Mormons before the looting began. Colonel George M. Hinkle was not the only traitor to Joseph Smith. Ever since 1837, Joseph had seen traitors popping up all around him. More recently, he had seen the friendship and support of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon melt away into oblivion. However, none of them denied their testimonies of Moroni and what he had shown them. Another leading traitor was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, Thomas B. Marsh. Marsh had been faltering in his faithfulness for some time, and during the crisis in Missouri, he had learned that he could gain the friendship of the mob by denying Joseph Smith and leaving the church. He could even get to keep all of his property and stay in Missouri. To achieve his purposes, he went before a judge and signed a certificate that Joseph Smith was a leader of the Danites who he claimed were a secret society that pledged to murder and avenge the prophet's enemies. When his lies became known, he was excommunicated and stayed in Missouri until 1857, when he crossed the plains and pleaded with Brigham Young to let him become a lowly member of the church. After their arrest, Joseph Smith and the other leaders were forced to sleep on the cold ground all night, and were chained together like common criminals. The next day a court-martial was held, and the prisoners were all condemned to be shot at 9 a.m. on Friday morning, November the 2nd, 1838. 
General Samuel D. Lucas ordered the execution to be carried out by General Alexander W. Donovan. But General Donovan was outraged and wrote a letter to General Lucas which said, quote, It is cold-blooded murder. I will not obey your order. My brigade will march for Liberty, Missouri tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. And if you execute these men, I will hold you responsible before an earthly tribunal, so help me God, unquote. This is in the Essentials of Church History by Smith, page 240. General Lucas then had Joseph and the other Mormon leaders hauled up to Jackson County, where they were put on display like a circus, quote, caravan of elephants or camels, unquote. They were subjected to disgraceful abuse with little nourishment, and they had to sleep on the ground in spite of the wintry weather. Once more, they were condemned to be shot, this time on Monday morning, November 14, 1838. However, General Clark was advised that Joseph and his associates were not military prisoners, and General Clark would have to turn them over to civilian authorities who would thereupon try them for, quote, treason, murder, arson, larceny, theft, and stealing, unquote. The civilian trial was a farce of the lowest order, and the prisoners were sentenced to be imprisoned in Liberty Jail, Clay County. Their prison was more like a dungeon, cold, dark, and without sanitation facilities. The prisoners were allowed a little straw to sleep on and were fed scraps from the warden's kitchen. The prophet of God was confined to these quarters for several months, and that developed into a new kind of crisis for Joseph, which we will cover in the next section. This is the end of section 120. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to read more on the Prophet Joseph Smith, look for W. Cleon Skousen's book titled Brother Joseph at skousenlibrary.com.